Welcome everyone. I'm your host, Jenny G. Cousins, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Soul to Soul Connections with Jenny G. In order to catch all the shows, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can catch me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter under Jenny Cousins. Now on today's episode, I want to thank my guest for his bravery and courage for coming on to share his very personal traumatic journey and story with me. His name is Billy Dinkle from Long Prairie, Minnesota. And Billy was sexually abused as a child and molested. And he is here to share his journey with us all. And thank you, Billy, for taking the time to come on and speak to me. Well, Jenny, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, as we talked earlier, I, I think this is, these are these stories are very important. Um, so I really appreciate the opportunity to, to to talk about childhood sexual abuse and to talk about healing. Yes, yes. So when, um, how old were you when you were starting to get molested, sexually molested? So. <laughs> It's my recollection that I was in eight years old. So the summer of my eight year old, eighth birthday, um, there was, um, so from the ages of eight to 12. So the summer of my 13th birthday is when it ended. Um, so it began, um, 1976 was the summer of my eighth birthday. Mm -hmm. Mm How, um, how did you meet your your abuser so it's a little complicated but um it's it's fairly uh hopefully i'll explain it well enough um we i come from a very large family uh farm family catholic farm family in central minnesota um my father owned several farms that we farmed uh, and my oldest sister mary ellen and her husband, Ken, that was Ken and Mary Ellen Otremba, purchased a farm directly across the country road from the home farm where I was being raised. Ken had a younger, Ken also came from a large family uh, in a a neighboring county. uh, And one of his brothers was, uh, uh, we say mentally challenged, I'm not sure exactly how to put that, nowadays, but, but I believe George was ne- mentally challenged. He came to live with them uh, in the summer or springtime summer of 1976, to the best of my recollection. And um, as a farmhand, um, I found out many years later that George was, um, the reason he was brought there is he was, they were having problems with him on the farm that Ken grew up on. So it was they knew about it when when Ken when George came to that. So th- so directly across the road, our houses were literally about uh, two or three hundred yards apart. Um, George was uh, in my he was born in 1958, so he was probably 19 
years old at that time, um, uh, or 19 or 20 at that time. And he was a live-in farmhand for his older brother, Ken, who was my brother-in-law, directly across the road, uh, the country gravel road from the farm that I grew up on. Mm. Okay. So what, um, like how, how did he start, how did he start to groom you? Because I know that a lot of the predators, there's a system, as I call yeah. it, that they did. For sure. Uh, it's not looking back on it now as an, as an, uh, as a mature older person and looking back on how it was handled, he had done this before. Um, and certainly after me, he had, he done it, he, uh, had continued uh, for many more victims. Um, George was, you know, I was eight years old. I was curious. I was uh, going to school at a small Catholic school, Catholic grade school at the time. And I didn't have, um, you know, there, there, trust me when, when I say that it, in the 1970s in a small Catholic school, we weren't learning body parts and we weren't learning sexuality and we weren't learning, um, we weren't being taught the names of body parts and how that works at the age of eight. Um, so, so at like any boy at eight, nine, ten you know, years old, or in that time frame, or in a grammar school setting, you we're getting curious how bodies work, and 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 I was curious about things, right? I'm, so George brought that up to me, and and it originally started, if you remember. Um, like the J.C. Penney catalogs or the Sears and Roebuck catalogs, right? They sold uh, women's underwear and they sold uh, uh, bras and panties, right? So, so George would say, "Hey, you know, I remember specifically one time in the yard that he said, um, "Hey, did you guys get the new Sears catalog?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "Do you want to bring it over?" And and so that was kind of the beginning. It was curiosity and it was, hey, I, 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 you know, he had done that before. He had, he understood that I was going to be curious about that. And, and it became kind of the, hey, George is my friend and I'm gonna learn some of the naughty stuff from George, from my new friend, George. And so that's how it started by, by kind of uh, pun intended to arousing my curiosity, right? Somehow, understanding him understanding that I wasn't I wasn't going to obviously learn that stuff from my parents at home because we were a Catholic strict Catholic family in the country um, and I went to a very strict Catholic grammar school and we weren't being taught you know body parts or, or learning about those things so the curiosity is there it's there in every human being as they grow up and as they're starting to slightly mature um, you are curious with well, whether you're watching TV or listening to the radio or you're seeing billboards, you're starting to wonder when, you know, I'm a boy, but what does that mean? And so George plucked pride into and, and, and worked on that curiosity of an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're just a child. You don't, you don't know any better. You hardly know. Yeah. You know, you know what's wrong because you've been told that it's all wrong, but you don't know what you're supposed to know, like it starts as a snowfall. It starts as a slight sprinkling of dusting of snow, right? Pretty, but but once the avalanche starts of sexual abuse, there's no stopping. It, it's very difficult for an eight-year-old boy who might weigh 60 or 70 pounds or 80 pounds 
to stop a 200 pound plus man from have from having his way with him right so 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 what starts as a, as a few snowflakes of curiosity ends up you're buried or you're tumbling down the mountain of of it's not curiosity anymore anymore pretty soon it's 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 dangerous and it's hurtful and it's physically hurting you and it, and it certainly does um, obviously, as I as I found out throughout my life, it's certainly done some psychological damage, mental mental damage. When when you're a child like that, I mean, you, you don't understand. And this is why I wanted to talk about this because if there are any children out there, you know, or anybody out there, you, you know, it's really important to let it out and and not hold it in. Because, you know, you're, you're a child. Nobody can point the finger and say it's a child's fault at all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's taken me a lot of years, a lot of decades to realize that, to come to grips with the fact that it, it wasn't my fault. In any way, shape, or form, was it my fault. That curiosity that I had wasn't something that I am to blame for. No. Um, because as a child you're supposed to be curious. You're supposed to want to know more. You're supposed to want to know how the world works. You're supposed to want to know, you're supposed to want to know things, right? And so it, this message is as important for those children, but it's as important for anyone who's a parent, anyone who's a grandparent, anyone who's a coach or an uncle or an aunt. These, these messages, these stories, and I believe that more people than we are afraid to admit have these stories. But the most important people I think these stories are, are, are that, that these stories are most important to, the people that these stories are most important to, are the survivors or the, or the past victims of childhood sexual abuse or molestation or sexual assault, adolescent or, or not, you know, when you know anyone under 18, there's no one under 18 that can, that can legally consent. So if, if, there are so many victims. If if the if the searches and the, and if the if the studies are correct, and I believe they are, actually quite low in their numbers or the data, one in three girls is sexualized sexualized before they're eighteen years old. And keeping in mind, anyone under eighteen years old can't consent. So one in three girls are sexualized without their approval or without their consent. One in six boys, and there's some studies that say one in five boys now. It's unbelievable, and it doesn't matter if it. Obviously, the percentages are slightly higher in in the in poor communities or those that are less fortunate. But it's, but these, these this data is straight, all the way from poor classes all the way up to the to the wealthy. It doesn't through middle class through upper middle class, all the way into this to the extremely wealthy. It's a human condition. It's not a financial condition. It is a human condition. This is a problem that affects everyone across the board. Are the percentages slightly higher? Certainly they are in underprivileged communities. Yep, in diverse communities, they certainly are. But it is across the board a problem. And so this, these messages, these stories, I say that these are, my story is an important story, not because it's about me, but it's one of the most important stories because of the topic and the topic is childhood sexual abuse. Yes, and and that's why when like we first connected, I just 
I, I wanted to really get it out and emphasize it even more, you know, mm -hmm. rather than too many things get brushed away and ignored. And, it, you know, so many things are coming out nowadays and it's time. It, 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 it's time, you know, how long did this go on for? So, um, and again, I always say it was almost five years. Um, uh, it, you know, it probably a good solid five years of more than weekly. Uh, I mean, George, we worked side by side on these farms um, daily, you know, when in the evenings and sometimes before school and certainly on the weekends and then all summer. So if uh, I always, uh, you know, I'd like to someday, I wish that I, I wish that I could forget the whole thing, but when I try to remember how often or how long or how terrible the abuse was, I know that it happened more than once a week. And I know that it happened for about, for, to me, for about five years. Um, and so, you know, that's hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, and I'm not, I don't generally count the touching and the molesting. I, it, it's literally, you know, we'll get into some of the, some of the more detailed stuff, hopefully later in this conversation, but um, it, it, it lasted for what seemed to, a, to an eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old child. It lasted a long, long time um, for any, you know, we, we think about, um, I think about Elizabeth Smart, right? She was abducted and she was kept for, and, t and horribly treated for nine months approximately. And, um, and that's, the, that's not the norm. The norm isn't that you're abducted by a stranger and kept in the woods. The norm is that it's an uncle or it's a stepdad or it's a brother or it's an aunt or it's, you know, that's the norm. It's the coach, it's the priest, it's the Boy Scout leader. It's, and so for me, you know, what started out as a trusted, you know, hey, my sister and my brother-in-law trust this person enough to have them live in their house. I must feel safe. You know, I must be, and, and being a naive boy being related, being raised in a, in a Christian, you know, kind of a naive Christian trusting home, I believed that I could trust this person and, and it, and unfortunately for me, it was a situation where I couldn't trust that person. And so at five years, uh, I say eight through 12, it's probably uh, somewhere around my 13th birthday that it stopped, the summer of my 13th birthday that it stopped. Goodness, well, yeah. I mean, not, e I mean even it, once is too much. Right. Yeah. And, and you went through that for right. way too long. But, you know, even once is not acceptable by as far as I'm concerned, you know. Right. With a child. Right. It's it's terrible to say, like we think about. Um, I have a dear friend, uh, a dear, dear friend. And uh, and she said, you know, when I first told her about it, she said, my God, it took me years to get over the, my rape. And it took me, and that was one night in college that I, that changed my whole life, you know? And she said, I can't imagine what a, what a boy, what a young boy who doesn't even understand what's happening 
um, for that to happen over and over and over again. And, and we have to remember, I, I really want to emphasize this point, that childhood sexual abuse is different than, than, than you know, it's, we have to define it for people because otherwise the people want to believe the least amount of damage was done, right? They want to believe, people want duckies and bunnies, right? They want rainbows and unicorns and they want happiness. And, you know, you, you can't look at Facebook or Twitter and not see just happy things, right? I'm on vacation or I got a new car. People want happiness. What, what our mission is here, Jenny, and I believe that part of me telling my story is to change the di we're changing the paradigm around child around child sexual abuse and we're going to define it and those and some people are going to be uncomfortable with what really happens mm -hmm. one time is too many mm -hmm. yeah three or four hundred times is 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 unbelievable but we have to we have to explain to people how terrible it can be for children and how terrible it really is for children yeah when they're not, when adults are not helping them yeah did you did you tell anybody about it the first um i did mm -hmm. uh, i told you know you know the first few months were that grooming kind of hey this is cool you know whatever fun part and then pretty soon it went farther than i wanted it to go right i he was touching me and holding my arms and it was forced and he was, um, uh, I'm not sure exactly how, what your listeners want to know, but, but again, being more graphic with it, it, you know, there was ejaculation was starting and there was some forced this and, and forced, um, uh, forced sex, right? So, so not, not, not necessarily rape in the common, um, in the common definition of rape, but rape in the in the in a dictionary or in the in the in the Webster's form. Um, so there was some of that, and there was oral, and there was forced oral, and there was there. And so different things were starting where I was afraid. I was terribly afraid and didn't know how to stop it. And he was so much bigger than me that I couldn't stop it. So I had, so I took all of the strength that I had, and this is, and I've been told by a lot of uh, by a lot of therapists and a lot of people that this is. That it's very uncommon, but I summoned a bunch of courage when I for an eight-year-old boy, and I stood in front of my mother in the kitchen and I said, and I told her, "Mom, um, George is touching me, and it, it where from, and he's touching me where I pee, and it hurts me. It it, it hurts me, and um, and that was the first time I reached out, and she was, I'll never forget it, she was kneading dough, and she had flour on her apron, and, and it, it was a daytime, uh, I'm assuming that school hadn't started yet, because it was daytime, and, and I, I just remember how the kitchen was set up, and everything, um, and uh, she said, she raised her hand like she was going to slap me, and she said, shush, he is not, don't ever say that again, and as hard as I bet that was for me to hear, right? That was, help wasn't coming from my mom. At that new moment, I knew that I was not gonna be helped by my mom. I couldn't, there was no way I was gonna tell my father because my father was a rageaholic, was absolutely a rager. I, I felt that I would be beaten um, severely if I told my father. And, um, 
So I knew that at that moment in my, in, as even as an eight-year-old boy, I knew that that help wasn't coming from my mom. Um, later on in my life, I, I managed to, as I learned more about my situation and my healing, I was able to uh, forgive my mother for that. And, and we'll maybe talk more about that in, in, a, in the later on. But um, so that was the first time I reached out was to my mother a few months after it had started. So probably June, July, August. So let's say like September or August of that year, I had said, hey, you know, something's going on here that I don't understand. Can you help me? And I did not get the help that I needed. Because mm -hmm. I know you had um, also tried speaking to a priest. I did. That was the second what what how I what I remember is the second person that I talked to. This was much later, so I was in I was nine years old, I think, when I talked to uh, our our priest at our uh, Catholic church. Um, where, ironically, now keep in mind, George was a little bit uh, mentally challenged, or he was he didn't like he didn't have a driver's license. He didn't um, he could vote, but he didn't he didn't drive. He he you know, he didn't have his own household, you know, he lived with my brother and sister, so, or my brother-in-law and sister, and so, um, George was allowed to serve Mass at the, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Long Prairie, so if you think about who serves Mass, generally, it's young boys, right, so that gives George access to young boys, unlimited access, when you think about it, to young boys, I have been contacted by two young boys, not, not later now, when I, after I, in the past two years, I've been contacted by two who said that George had touched them in the church. So this, when I was nine years old, I reached out to, this was a very difficult thing. Father Ebner was a big, bald guy. I was terrified of Father Ebner. I, to me, to a nine-year-old boy who was raised in a strict Catholic home, he was the representation of, of God, right, of Jesus. And so I was terrified of Father Ebner. And I told Father Ebner that um, George, I basically said the same thing I said to my mother, George is touching me and, and I, I'm afraid that he, you know, that of George and it, and it hurts me. And I'll never forget this, Jenny. I'll never forget what he said. He kind of laughed in an uncomfortable, you know, kind of awkward way. And he said, well, Billy, what do you mean? What do you want me to do about it? And I'll never forget that as a, as a boy, as a nine-year-old boy, I'll, I'll just never forget that feeling of, of knowing that he wasn't going to be able to help me, knowing that he was not going to help me. Now, I don't know if later on he talked to my parents about that, or if he mentioned it to my mom, or I don't know. Uh, I'll never know that, I guess. But um, he, my father gave a considerable amount of money each week to the church. And I think that, you know, you don't want to upset the money train. And, and that's kind of the whole idea behind not upsetting the apple cart, right? So, so the second person I reached out to was Father Ebner at, the, at St. Mary's of Mount Carmel Catholic Church in Long Prairie. Because you also tried writing a letter to your, your brother when you I were did. 10. Yeah, it's probably, I, I would say it's 10 or 11. I, I, again, I, it's difficult as a child to remember the dates, 
my yeah. brother uh, Charlie Dinkle was a smoke jumper or a, was fighting fires out west. He was a, he was a wildfire fighter, and um, we corresponded periodically through letters. We didn't write because we didn't have text, <laughs> and so. Um, and Charlie was one of my heroes when I was growing up. He was my older brother, right? He was 14 years older than me and he played college football and he was an amazing high school athlete. But so, and now he was, oh my God, he was out West in the Rocky Mountains fighting fires. This was amazing to me to a, to a 10 or 11 year old boy. And I remember sending him uh, the first few letters that I sent to him, my mother helped me. Right. So, hi, you know, how are things going on the, out west? It's here. It's the same. Dad works us hard. You know, those kind of letters. Right. Farm letters. And I. Um, I remember at the end of one of my letters and I don't I don't know if if it actually I can't say for sure that I actually made it to Charlie. Right. Because my mother was would sometimes help me mail those letters, quote unquote, help me fold it and get it in there and make sure it had the right address on it and put the stamp on it. And I don't know if this was one of those letters she helped me with or if it was one of the letters that I did myself and he did realize it. I know that I got an answer from him. And the answer I got from him didn't mention what I had read. What I, the last few sentences I said was, you know, George is touching me and I need your help. Please help me. Or, you know, kind of, you know, kind of the Kilroy help me. And, um, and his return letter was fairly short. I remember that after that one, and it didn't mention anything. The only thing it mentioned was, you know, listen to your mom and dad, listen to mom and dad, always do what they say and just be a good boy. And, you know, and I, I when I read, my heart sank when I read his answer, right? Because I, no help was coming from one of my heroes, one of my absolute heroes. And so, I don't, I can't say definitively that he received my letter mm -hmm. without some changes, if you know what I mean, from my mom. If she had edited, you know, edited or rewrote it or did something different. What I can say is that at that moment in my life, I knew I was alone. I wasn't getting out of that, that my, that this childhood sexual abuse that was the, the, the rape and the sodomizing and the forced oral and the, and, the, and the oral on me, I wasn't getting out of that with help from my brother. At that moment, I knew that my brother wasn't going to help. And so that, that was, a, I, I know, you know, that was essentially the third time that I had reached out to an adult who, you know. In your family. Yeah. You know, especially, I mean, you know, I mean, now you're, you're thinking I've tried to, you know, give my voice and say my voice yeah. and share my yeah. voice. And, and you, and you hope, right. You, you, even as a child, you're hoping like, you know, I'm way past Santa Claus helping me. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to think of, the good things they're trying to teach me. So I'm trying to say, okay, now I need your help. I need, I need you to help me. And, and, and when children, children don't make this stuff up. No. Children don't know enough 
about sex and sexual abuse to make these things up. It's incredible how the lack of concern and the lack of accountability and the, and the little, the, the small percentages of justice that children get when they're sexually abused because we just can't believe them or well, they're unreliable witnesses or they're, so it's very frustrating to, to, to as a child reach out and not have someone believe you. So the, one of the messages that I make sure that I could try to convey is please listen to the child when it's trying to tell you something. Listen to your children when they're trying to say something. Listen to your children when they're trying to tell you that they're having a problem at school when their teachers, they're not comfortable with someone or they don't wanna hug someone or they're, they don't wanna be alone in a room with someone. Listen to your children, like try to read what they're saying because they're very small people in a giant world, in, in literally a giant's world. So to your child, you are a giant and you, and you know, try not to be too angry with the child, try not to be too physical with the child, but most importantly, from the childhood sexual abuse point of view, please try to try to listen to your child because they will tell you, they will try to tell you. Yeah, children aren't going to make up stories about that. Something exactly. like that. They don't, and it just, it, it really makes me sick. Um, I knew a family that um, her husband, her new husband was molesting, sexually molesting her daughters. And yeah. he went to jail and she stayed Thanks, with uh, him. She stayed with him. And even after he got out of jail, she stayed with him. And after that point, I, I just did not, really want to communicate as much with that family anymore because it's thought how could you stay with a monster like that who is your husband who is raping your children that I was just and then everybody cried when he eventually died and I'm like are you kidding me like are you kidding me right. and you know so that's it, it's just a astonishing when when it something happened similar to to my son and I raised hell and long story short the situation um I dealt with it immediately and that whole daycare situation they left the province because there's no way in hell I was going to have anything like that ever happen as long it was anywhere near me like that that was enough for me yeah. And, and we want to believe that, right? We want, we, want to, we want, as adults, to think, well, I would protect my children with everything I had. Yeah. I would kill yeah. a person or I would do yeah. whatever it takes. And, and then, you know, I think we've learned more about shame in the last five years from, thankfully, from people like Brene Brown and, and, and others, that that's not really what happens, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, and not, I'm not, not saying that your stories, but but like your friend, mm -hmm. yeah. shame takes over and you, I, I feel so bad, but these people are accomplices. They are, they are accomplices in felon, felonious crimes against children. And I feel bad that they're shamed and they don't wanna be embarrassed in their communities and they don't, you know, they don't wanna lose their, I call it losing your front seat in church. I understand that. But more important than your reputation and more important than your shame 
and your little red face is a child. A child that is now, that could be damaged for life if it oh. doesn't get the right love and support and help. And that's, a, that's such an important message that we have because everyone believes that they're gonna do the right thing until they're actually confronted with it. And then you realize, I, maybe I'm too shamed, maybe I'm not the right person because that child is looking for an absolute hero. And, and, and sometimes people can't stand up. My mom didn't have what it took to be an absolute hero. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it was. Was she afraid of my, my father? Would, would, would she afraid of what the community might say? Was she, yeah. was she abused when she was little and she froze? Um, but the, at, the, at the time of test, my, my, my mother was a wonderful person, but when it came time to saving that little boy, that little eight-year-old boy, she failed. She failed that test. And my sister, my sister, who was a wonderful person, failed that test. She she failed that test. Yeah. Um, so and and that brings up another topic or another segue a little bit. That there were other people that knew that that I was being abused. So Ken, you remember George's older brother who lived across the road, who was my sister's husband. Ken had walked in on George abusing me several times. My sister, Mary Ellen, had walked in on George having uh, abused, sexually abusing me several times. So this wasn't, it wasn't just my mother and the priest and my brother, Charlie, and, and there was, a, it was a, it was almost a unified front against the truth. Um, so Ken and Mary Ellen not only knew what George had been doing to other children at the, far, at the farm he came from, at the farm Ken and George grew up on, but he then, Ken and Mary Ellen knew what George was doing to me. Like knew, like had seen it firsthand and didn't contact the proper authorities and didn't remove George from children. He was still serving mass. He was still an altar boy with these other children. He was still, you know, the priest knew and George was still an altar boy at the church. So, so this idea that they had done everything they could and it was somehow, well, it's, there's more to it than what Billy is saying. It's just not true. It's just simply not true. There's, there was ample opportunity to minimize the trauma that built that, that little eight-year-old boy, that the little eight, nine, 10, 11, 12-year-old boy, Billy, little Billy had, was feeling there was ample opportunity to, to minimize that trauma. And it wasn't because of shame, because of not wanting to lose their front seat in church and not wanting to be embarrassed and not wanting to, I, I don't, not wanting to admit that it was true. I, I don't, I don't know, but there was ample opportunity to save that boy and they didn't. So that sends us, that sends a very, very, very dangerous message to that boy. Not only did we not save you, but what does that tell the child? It tells the child that you're not worth saving. To us, our reputations are more important than you. So if you're an eight-year-old boy and you're getting sexually abused on the Dinkle farm in the 1970s, you're not, our reputation is more important than your physical safety. Just, just want you to know that, you know. So that sends a that sends a dangerous psychological message to that eight year old boy too. It, yeah, and it unfortunately it, it stays with a child, you know. There's, yeah. it, it 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 really does. I mean, I've I've had a very traumatic life to be honest, and 
I don't talk about it a lot. And I actually, I was in, I just went for like therapy. It was, it was years ago, just for some kind of a healing for something small. And my friend brought me and (laughs) I was in there three hours and I was only, I think I was only booked in for 45 minutes. And then when I came out, like, he just kind of looked at me and I mean, he's a good friend of mine. And then when we were driving home, I just broke down and I started telling him things that nobody knows. And, and he's like, what, like, what he like, like he, like he was shocked. I'm a really strong person, you, you know, and that's why I'm like a very spiritual person today because of just many reasons you know did you ever have um like any suicidal thoughts at all i told you know recently i was talking with a friend uh, this it's been two years that i've been vocal and speaking out about what happened to me about the trauma that i experienced when i was a child um and i was recently in the past few months talking with a friend about i i just was talking we were going over um suicidal thoughts and ideation right thinking about suicide and i asked her i said well have you ever thought about killing yourself and she said no and i'm like what like i've never heard of that before and she said that you know i've thought about suicide but i've never thought about killing myself you know and she said well have you thought about killing yourself i said I've thought about killing myself since I was eight years old, like almost every day since I was eight years old. Now that sounds worse than it really is, right? I I haven't thought about how I was gonna do it and was I really gonna do it? And and today I'm gonna hang myself and I'm gonna, but but as a boy growing up on the farm, there's big machinery around a lot. And we're sometimes climbing up silos and we're on top of roofs or we're in the barn, we're up on the top, you know. There is ample opportunity to throw yourself in front of a machine or jump off of a silo or a grain silo or there. So I have thought, I I tell people that I've thought about suicide since I was eight years old. Now the, and and there's the, the reason that I, you know, people say, why did you run away? When you're an eight year old boy in the country in central Minnesota, and you, you, you've been taught about heaven and hell and how, oh, you know, how people who don't honor their father and mother go to hell and they burn in hell forever. And, um, there was nowhere for me to run. There, 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 it wasn't like I was gonna you know, run to town and tell people that I was being harmed on the farm and then someone was gonna save me. That wasn't gonna happen. There, there was what, what happened, you know, my option was to think about, okay, can I handle hell for the rest of my life? Like, or for, for eternity, I mean, sorry, not for the rest, but for eternity. And I decided when I was eight years old that I couldn't, that that was not something I could well, do. And I was gonna read something, but I just, I when I, when I was, the senior in high school, I did attempt to suicide. I had taken uh, sleeping pills that I had slowly purchased over the course of several weeks. And I, my intent was to 
and she get numb enough and fall asleep enough and then shoot myself. And, uh, and it didn't work out that, I mean, I think it was more of a cry for help, right? It was an attention, like, Hey, I need help. I need attention. I need someone to help me here. And so that's, I, I did attempt suicide once and I don't know, you know, the normal person would say, well, that's not really an attempt at suicide. Well, whatever. But the, but so yes, I have thought about almost my whole life, or at least I've ideated, right? Which is the idea, of, like being kind of romanticized by the idea of suicide, and never. Interestingly enough, people would say, you know, I, I as 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 an adult, I did some things that I'm not proud of, and I think all of us do. I, I probably did a few more when I was self-medicating. Um, and so I would hold these little trials in my head and I would always be convicted and the sentence would always be death. And thankfully, you know, for me, for me personally, thankfully I never carried those out, but they would, I would be sentenced to death by hanging or I would be sentenced by, for shooting myself or you know, gun, you know, firing squad. And, and I would be the executioner and the executed. And, and I never, carry those out and that might sound crazier than it really is but that but idea is the thought of the pain ending right the, you don't really want to i didn't really want to die what i wanted was the pain to end i wanted the memories to stop i wanted the nightmares to stop because you yeah i i had read where you had um started to get revenge on george started to I, take revenge when you're when you're 13 around there what did what did you do so i realized that i was never going i needed to my number one prayer because i was a prayer because we were prayers right because we were raised catholic and prayer was there so what i asked god for was the strength to stop the sex was the strength to stop the abuse and so around the summer of my 13th birthday which would be you know which would have been about five years i remember um george was uh so george was gonna go down on me as the as we as the you know perform fillet show on me and as he was leaning down he had left one leg of my pants on and I had one, and he had left my shoes on. I had some tennis shoes, like, you know, on the farm we didn't, I had hand-me-downs, right? So I didn't have high quality shoes, but I had these tennis shoes. And I remember they're like white, well, I don't know, Keds or something, I, you know, and they weren't Keds, but they were like a knockoff like that. And so, but he had left my shoes on and I, and I, this was my opportunity. I was either, this was gonna happen now. And George didn't have really all of his teeth. He didn't take very good care of his teeth. Um, one, ironically, that's one of my triggers now is, is the smell of decaying teeth, right? So I, as George was going down, I kicked him in his mouth with my heel and I, and I kicked him several times and I had kicked, um, he didn't have all his teeth, but I kicked three in the end, it, it was bloody, extremely bloody. And I kicked uh, three of his teeth out. Um, I think they had to pull a fourth one. I don't remember exactly the, the dental records, but um, so I knocked quite a, I, this wasn't like I was all of a sudden stronger than him. It was like, I caught him in the right, in the right position. 
I remember Ken, my brother-in-law coming into the room and he was very angry. I got slapped in the head a couple of times very hard by Ken. George was bleeding profusely. I remember he, they had to rush him to the dentist and, um, and so, yeah, right. And so in the end, right, this boy, this little boy is his own hero, right? So much like later in life where I've got to go back and say, okay, mentally, we got we to gotta figure this out. Physically at that 12 or 13 year old age, that summer of that 13th birthday, I had to save myself because my mother wasn't saving me. My brother-in-law, Ken, wasn't saving me. My, my sister, Mary Ellen, wasn't saving me. My older brother, Michael, wasn't saving me. My, my brother, Charlie, wasn't saving me. My, my dad wasn't saving me. My mom wasn't, you know, the priest wasn't, God wasn't saving me. It was up to me to save me. It was the only way that I was going to stop it. Not that I was super, I had super strength or not that I did something heroic, but I saved myself when I had the opportunity. And so that my opportunity was when George was, you know, leaning down, stroking himself and wasn't aware of what the situation was and he wasn't holding both my arms or holding both my feet like he sometimes did you know he would pull my pants down enough to leave my pants at my ankles which then I couldn't you know he did this hundreds of times my I couldn't struggle my hand my my, my ankles were essentially tied by my pants right so this time, one of my legs was out, as I explained earlier, and it gave me the opportunity to, to kick George in the face a couple of times. And I remember I got in a lot of trouble for that. I just remember my father being extremely angry about the anger issues that I had. And I, I thought that was, boy, that was the pot calling the kettle black. But they didn't ask why, mind you, no one, because they knew, right? They didn't have to ask why. They, they knew that why I kicked George, but they were still angry that it was going to cost them money to fix George's teeth and da, 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 da. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, I, yes. I, I, you know, so yeah. So yeah. So I don't, I don't know if that was necessarily revenge. I, there were plenty of times in my life where I wanted to, you know, where I did want to kill George. Um, okay. I didn't, I never, I never acted on that, but. Yeah. Um, can you see me? I can. Uh, <laughs> oh, there we are. I don't know what happened. <laughs> okay. Has it been? Did it record? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, the internet. I don't know what's going on, but it's, you, you know, hopefully it will be okay. <laughs> so now I Here know that. Are. Yeah, I know that George was convicted of second degree sex crime with a 10 year old um, boy. And he wasn't convicted um, for anything that he did to you, was he? No, no. Um, and I never had, I was so sh filled with shame that I didn't talk about it for years. I never really told anyone about it. George was never um, convicted for anything he had done to me or any of the other victims that he had on the farm or at the church at, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Long Prairie. Um, or on the Dinkle Farm or on the Otremba Farms. Um, he was never convicted of any of those crimes. I don't know that even any of those crimes were ever reported by my family or by the victims. Um, much later in life, uh, he was at a home, Harding School, a Harding home in, in Stearns County, which is just outside of Little Falls, Minnesota. And he was um, 
and anyone, this is public information, anyone can read uh, the, the court documents. He was caught with a 10-year-old boy, criminal sexual, second-degree criminal sexual conduct with a minor, with a 10-year-old boy um, at that time. And that was a family member. I, I don't know, we don't know who, um, but someone had actually just come to visit him and brought their son, brought their son to, I just can't imagine the stupidity or the ignorance or the naivete to bring someone almost like sacrifice, like, mm. and they were alone in his room playing strip poker is, is and, and, it, and these are, this is cop, this is public, you know, this is public mm. information. So, yes, it is. Uh, so that tells you the amount of, of just, I feel so, I'm just this, of it, and I want to say ignorance, but it's it's this belief in the you know rainbows and unicorns and that bad things just don't happen and what they said about George isn't true. Like you would have to be so ignorant or so let's just say it's stupid to leave your ten year old boy with a with George alone in a room. I, I can't even fathom that. So George was convicted in two thousand four, I believe. Um, he was, he, he only got probation. None, no other victims were contacted. Family members of mine stood up for him. I just, I just, I can't, it just, it, it makes, it makes me so angry to not, that none of us were, it was actually hidden from us actually. So they tried to hide it from us. So um, it's, it's, it's an amazing secret that this family, um, one of the things that inspired me to start talking was one of my oldest brothers said to me once when I said that I was going to start talking about it, he said, um, how dare you tell our family secrets to strangers? And I thought, wow, for a man who who is so well read, how can you be so stupid and, and small-minded? You know, like, how can you not know that what happened was criminal and by the, our family hiding that was also criminal? And the damage that, that, that those felonious crime, they're felonies, that the damage that that could do to children. Yeah. And then just pretend like it's like, you're supposed to carry this burden to your grave. You're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to tell anyone. You're not supposed to embarrass me. Like yeah. your embarrassment is more important than the health of a child. Yeah, yeah. No, no I know. I know. Yeah, I mean, like, how did you feel? Because I know George passed on February 24th, 2006. How did you feel when you knew that he had passed on? Did you know right you know, away? No, no, it was kept. I mean, it wasn't like no one said, hey, George died. Um, but I remember someone saying uh, after, you know, the fact and after, you know, a few months, maybe it was a few months or a few weeks, I had, so a couple months, let's say, and after he died saying, oh, George died. And I thought, oh, why wouldn't you tell us that? But I remember feeling to myself, I remember saying, well, I was not, that my, my fear was gone. Like there was a small amount of fear that still lived inside of me, like a relief, maybe more of a relief, but I was just a little bit less afraid. 
And and in all in all honesty, in bare bones honesty, it was a relief that I wouldn't didn't have to kill him. That that he was no longer going to hurt any more children. Mm-hmm. And and that burden had been lifted off of me. Yeah. Because I wasn't because I didn't save all of the children that were after me. Yeah. It's guilt and the shame that I carried. And so I, I think a little bit of fear went away and, and, and I was relieved and I just felt like a little burden had been lifted off me. Because I know that was Jeffrey, it, uh, sorry, go on. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say that I, Jeffrey I, Dion said that there's an average of 50 perpetrators um, or uh, there's an average of 50 victims per perpetrator. Yeah. Which That's I think crazy. Which but I it, think yeah. is low, right? Like yeah. if George was 48 years old when he died and it was virtually, he was virtually unregulated. Like it, he was not, he was not like tethered in any way from having victim after victim after victim after victim, 13 victims in addition to me have contacted me, George's victims, hundreds of other victims, but 13 of George's victims have contacted me since I started speaking up. There'll be more. All all of those victims, all of those victims were after me Mm -hmm. from the Long Prairie area. So, and, and again, I, I want to reiterate that George had some mental deficiencies. And so I really hold a lot, my family, the adult members of my family, hold a lot of the blame and the guilt, and rightly so the shame of allowing George to have victim after victim after victim after victim. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that, a lot of that stands with the, with the, with the, the, the members of my family who were adults when George began his uh, tyranny of sexual childhood sexual abuse, his, his victimizing of people in Long Prairie, Minnesota, Todd County, Minnesota. It's crazy. Did, when did you start therapy? Because I know that, um, of course, you know, with your situation, you, you would have had to have started therapy to help you with that after well i um what was very i didn't start like like when i was a young person i i fell into athletics was kind of my i I was a big kid and i was strong kid and i was relatively coordinated and so my therapy was athletics when i was when i was in uh an adult you know when i was going through uh, becoming a young man, my therapy really became, I dove into basketball, I dove into uh, uh, football and, uh, and, and those in basketball really became my therapy at that time. When I, when I attempted suicide, my senior year, I was, I was sexually assaulted by a teacher, by a middle school teacher when I was a senior. And I, that threw me back you know, into some of that childhood trauma. And so I, and shortly after becoming, like I was homecoming king and then I, and I was sexually assaulted 
by this teacher. And then I was, um, I attempted suicide shortly after that. And so I was in um, Two West, they call it, which is the mental health ward of the St. Cloud Hospital. And St. Cloud is a, near, is a town in central Minnesota that's, that is kind of a larger town, you know, city of, uh, at that time, probably 80,000 people. So they had the bigger hospitals. And, and so essentially that's when I, when I was explained to me, like, I didn't talk about my childhood trauma there. Mm-hmm. I talked about the stressors of being a, 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 you know, I didn't, I didn't talk about the sexual assault. I didn't talk about the sexual abuse when I was a child. I just wanted to talk about my family and, and the stresses of being uh, of working so hard on the farm and trying to get your schoolwork done and, and the mental stress of just being a kid, right? Just being a, a just being a young person with all of the drama that goes on in high school, right? That was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be normal, right? I wanted to just be a normal kid. And I wanted the pain of all this pain and all these nightmares and all these thoughts to stop. When I started, uh, actually started therapy was, you know, I mean, it's a long story to get to therapy, but, but um, there, there was, so that, so that I, you know, there was some therapy after, um, after I was an adult and I had dropped out of college and things like that uh, because of my alcoholism and, and, and different things. And, and we call that, I know I come, we were, co- we, when we're working on the book or working on the story, we call that self-medication, right? I self-medicated for about a decade with alcohol yeah. and the attention of, 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 of beautiful people, uh, beautiful women. And so, um, so after my self-medicating days were over and I knew that I was either going, that I, if I wanted to do the things in my life that I wanted to do, I needed to sober up along with that came um, the idea that I needed to talk to someone. And mm-hmm. so I, I started with, of course, because I was Catholic, I started with some Christian, with some um, <clears throat> therapy from, from uh, therapy from uh, priests and uh, former priests and, and Christian therapists. And I broke up with a, there was a gal that broke up with me when I, when I sobered up which is one of the reasons that we kind of ignited my sobriety. Um, and, and I talked about that time is when I started to talk to people about um, how difficult and how hard my life, I believed my life was inside my head, right? It wasn't until about 12 years ago that I decided that I knew I needed when I was suffering from some severe depression from some bad choices that I had made and just life and all and the nightmares had come back and the pressure and the anxieties. <clears throat> I went to the Meadows in uh, Arizona and the Meadows is a retreat for uh, recovery from alcoholism or uh, drug addiction or sex addiction or uh, mental health issues, depression, uh, they deal with depression. It wasn't until the Meadows in, then until I was visiting the Meadows for 35 days in Arizona that I had pub, that I really told someone in a group, it was in group therapy, that I was sexually violently sexually abused for a long period of time when I was a child. And I'll, I remember it, I remember it quite clearly because I actually, you know, was violent. Like they, like they encouraged me to be violent. Like, hey, move out of the way he's talking. And, and, and I smashed a chair up against the wall just finally being able to say out loud that 
that that I was sexually abused, that I was held down and had in you know these hundreds of times I was tricked into having sex and and and, and letting finally letting finally admitting to myself that I was very angry about this and that I was very upset about what was allowed to happen to me by my family, mm-hmm. by George for a long period of time. And so, so I've had a history of therapy, you know, for decades, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy. Um, right now I have, I think a wonderful therapist that I appreciate uh, very much who's helped me um, come to grips with a lot of what happened to me. So therapy has played a big, a large role in my life. And reading, reading the assigned books, right? Understanding what Vanderkolk talks about when he talks about the body keeps score and, and understanding that trauma is stored inside of my body. And the reason that physical activity and exercise and all of these things feels good for, for, not, for, for not just everyone, but for me especially, is because some of that trauma is still trapped inside my body. And, and you know, and it can, it can take, it's always there, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. just one day at a time. Like if there was anyone, um, like even a child who catches this episode um, or anybody else that is currently being sexually abused or abused, what, what would you tell them that they should do? Like, what should they do? Like, what's the best thing that they should do? Well, I think if, if we're, let's say we're, if we, talk, if a child says this and, and they're being sexually abused and they're trying to figure out, first of all, you, you don't, this isn't your fault. What's happening to you isn't your fault. Um, you deserve better. Every child, every child deserves better than that if you don't know who to talk to um please reach out to someone to anyone if please you, if, if if even if you're not sure like um there are they can contact there, i mean there's i don't have the resources right in front of me but there there are umpteen million websites right we can talk to you uh one in i am one in six or one in six organization or um any of these kind of organizations um there's a tremendous amount of people, but I, I, I highly recommend you not talk to people who are affiliated with the person who is abusing you. Mm-hmm. Talk to someone who's independent, right? So, so if, you're, if you're in a domestic abuse situation and you wanna get out, don't talk to someone who's affiliated, who knows your spouse or your partner, right? If you're a child who's being abused by a teacher, don't talk to that, that to another teacher, talk, talk to someone, you know, find a police officer, find a, 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 a talk to your parents, right? Cause normal parents- Anybody are, until somebody listens, basically. Right. Never um, give up, right? That, I'm so proud of that little boy that I was. Yeah. Because he never gave up. I mean, when, you know, it's uncommon for children to, to, to want to reach out, to want it to end. But you have to talk to your parent. You have to talk to, you have to reach out and just never stop reaching out. I don't care if you have to run in the middle of the street and scream until someone says, what is happening in your life? Talk to someone, reach out to people. I, I, I highly recommend it's not clergy. I highly recommend it's not someone affiliated with the abuser. Mm-hmm. 
there's probably better advice out there, but I but never yeah. give up because, and the reason that you never give up trying to reach out is because you're worth it. You're worth it. You're worth it. You're worth it. Your life is worth it. You are worth it. You're worth the help. You're worth the health. You're worth the love and you're worth the support. You are totally worth the support and the love. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would recommend, you know, talk to everybody you know, anybody really who's going to actually listen and do something and keep talking until something is actually done. Yeah. And, and, you know, little children probably aren't going to see this, so they're not really. No, no, but there, you know, there's other people out there though, that it's happening to them that even could be adults, right? Absolutely. There's, there's, there are such, there are examples after examples of coaches or teachers or stepdad parents or aunts or uncles or people who are um who are having sex with adolescent Mm -hmm. children right it happens all the time those people might be watching this because they're because they're technological right they're they're internet friendly and they might stumble across this video and say wow there there are options for me there are people i can contact yeah and that's another reason i wanted to do it Absolutely. I highly recommend that you rec- that you look up. Um, there is a wonderful person in California, Joelle Castiex, who's just a, who's written some great books on this. I think she's a, she's a wonderful resource. Um, there there is just a, a tremendous amount of of help available, but you have to not be afraid to reach out, and you have to just keep reaching out. If someone says no, go to the next person. If someone else says no, go to the next person. People will help you if you keep reaching out. There are people that will help. There, there is actually, you know, I know a lot, lot of people are just too scared or don't know what to do or, or ha- how to handle the situation. And, mm-hmm. and you know, like abused, especially abused children in, in any way, you know, especially sexually, of course, but it really changes relationships with them, you know, um, partnerships, relationships, friendships, and it can cause a lot of traumatic experiences even more so, you know, so that's the thing. It's like, talk to somebody, reach out, you know, and, and really talk to somebody who you can really connect with and feel comfortable with. Cause you're married. I know you're, you're now married, of course. And, and that, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how I, I don't really don't know how I, was so fortunate to meet my my spouse who's tremendously supportive and uh, has encouraged me all along to speak out and has encouraged me to write the work the work on the book and write the book and and so we are I'm just so thankful and and she's been a part of this from the get-go and and you know as you probably guess it's not easy to be you know they're they're living with a traumatized person is not an easy thing right no. living with a recovering alcoholic is not an easy thing so no. so i'm so thankful for my spouse and her incredibly big heart and and her supportive um encouragement yeah because i always you know i always tell people i said you you shouldn't judge anybody because you are not walking in their shoes Right, right. I, and, and it's so interesting how, how sometimes your birth family isn't the, isn't, aren't the people that are going to help you. Sometimes right. the birth family want, is the toxic part of yeah. your life, right? Yeah. Take my situation, for example, right? When I first 
came out and I first really wanted to start telling my story, you know, I have family members who tried to stop that from happening. And, and that's toxicity. That is shame. That is, that is not what, what traumatized people need, survivors or victims or survivors need. What victims and survivors need is belief and they need support and they need love. And so, so these, some people in my family who are people of the cloth, right? They believe they're holier than thou, really discouraged. As a matter of fact, I went to a small newspaper in my hometown of Long Prairie, the Long Prairie Leader, and, and they had agreed to do a story until, you know, my sister-in-law, Mrs. Linda Dinkle, who is married to one of my older brothers who knew the abuse, who knew of George being an abuser. And they knew that George was an abuser and didn't stop it. Saying, you know, calling that newspaper and saying, look, the, you know, I don't think you should do this story. It's really going to embarrass our family. And it's going to, and he really wants to hurt the church and he really wants to hurt the school. And, and that's, that's not my mission at all. I don't, I don't care about hurting the church. I don't care about hurting the school until I had a very interesting point the other day made to me by a, a friend on Facebook said to me, she, she said, you know what is interesting about your story in the two years that you've been talking out, speaking out, you rarely mentioned your family and you never mentioned Mrs. Linda Dinkle until she stopped your story from being printed. She said, your family interjected themselves into your story of trauma again. So the point being that the toxicity and the shame that these families and these institutions carry, right? Universities do it, the Boy Scouts do it, you know, the, the Catholic Church does it schools do it right or, or organizations southern baptist you know th there are so many organizations that carry the shame of hiding it that they never want it to get out yeah. right so so my family even now i started speaking out when i was 50 years old these are adults that are in their 60s that still are conniving and working their way in small town minnesota to stop this story from getting out like decades later like well i'm the most, so <laughs> right it's the most unloving thing you could ever do yeah. right? like this person of christ who believes that they're so holy and wonderful is is that's one of them a survivor and so it's so important and again we're talking about those children reaching out reaching out Remember that your family might not always be the people that are going to help you. Yeah, they they never, yeah, mine didn't. Yeah, no, always, I was always the black sheep in my family, so yeah. I've been on my own for years, literally. So, you know. Well, well Jenny, I think we, we all have yeah that one uncle or that one aunt that never came right to Thanksgiving or never came to Christmas or never, yeah. and we always wondered whatever happened to them or why. Yeah. Now we're starting to figure out why, right? We're starting to figure out why because they weren't treated fairly, or there, maybe something happened, or there was Reasons. trauma. Right? Yeah. There's all there's truth behind the silence. There, there really is. I'm, I'm an observer. I have been for, forever, you know. And um, but when I want to speak out and get a point, you know, n my voice is very loud. <laughs> very yeah. loud and it will continue to get louder so you know i'm i'm very grateful that you took the time you know to talk to me billy like really really grateful so other people 
will know that it's okay to actually speak out and, you know, start the healing and the process. Well, I think that's, and I, and I think that's part of, I think that it not only is it healing for me, but it might be healing for someone who, who sees someone who's, who's speaking out and they, they suddenly find the courage in themselves to say, well, wait a minute. I have Trump. I, I, I want to talk about this because I need to. And then we show down the line. Mm-hmm. And very briefly, I think it's very similar to HIV AIDS. Until we talked about it, it was this dirty secret that didn't get funding and we couldn't figure out how to cure it and we couldn't. But once we started to talk about it to our legislators, we started to talk about it to Congress, Congress took, started to take notice. And then there was funding for scientists and there's funding for doctors. And pretty soon, once we started telling them about our about the people we cared about who were suffering from these things, then the funding came. And then it wasn't so taboo to talk about. And that's what we need in the childhood sexual abuse world. We need to talk about these stories. Absolutely. Well, I wanna thank you again, Billy. I could talk to you forever, but um, my little internet thing here, like I'm really nervous about it. It's kind of like shaking all around. Well, so I hope it, it ends up. Yeah. Um, so I don't want it to cut out. Um, so is there any like last thing that you'd, you would like to share, share with us? Well, I believe, I truly believe this. And I, and I say this uh, a lot on, on my Twitter page and, I, and we talk about it on Facebook. I believe everyone has a story to tell. Yes. And I believe we are all made of light and love and we are all part of something bigger than ourselves and we owe it to the universe to talk about these things so that we can help encourage other people to heal absolutely and that's why i do the work i do yeah and thank you for that oh that's that's why i do i'm i'm very good at it you know and and i not to toot my horn but um you know yeah that's exactly why i do that and like to share with um, you know, people and people such as yourself out there even more so. So well, thank you. I, yes, and I'm sure we'll talk again another time. And um, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in and, and watching, you know, another episode of Soul to Soul Connections with Jenny G. And um, for anybody who would like to connect with you, Billy, what would be the best way? I think, you, uh, Billy, it's at Billy Dinkle. Uh, Billy with a Y, Billy Dinkle, E-L-D-I-N-K-E-L on Twitter. And then uh, same on Facebook, it's Billy Dinkle. And uh, we're um, still working on the website for the book and we'll get that out there as soon as we can. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm sure we'll chat again soon. You know, cause like I said, there's there's so much more that we could have covered, but I'm just, this whole internet thing, I don't know what's going on today. <laughs> uh, if you think it's gonna cut out, we're better yeah i know it's it's literally like like just all over the place so i'm really a little nervous about it well we'll see how it turns out thank you jenny oh you're you're very welcome and stay with me stay with me here um and again everyone um you know i want to thank billy for coming on and sharing his his story with us all and um you know he is out there if any of you would like to get a hold of him to talk to him even more about this so please subscribe to my channel and um, share this story the the world really truly truly needs to hear 
Billy's voice and Billy's story. So thanks everyone for tuning in again. Thank you. Mm -hmm.